Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Ghassan Alric, who is professor in the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He is also the director of the Olives uh, Lab, a lab, Omni Lab for Intelligent Visual Engineering and Science, as well as the Center for Energy and Geoprocessing. Welcome, Ghassan. Thank you, Gil, um, and uh, thank you for hosting me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So, so we have a number of uh, very interesting areas to talk about um, in the area of artificial intelligence, uh, deep learning uh, neural networks. Uh, and I want to uh, start with one of your papers, uh, Backpropagated Gradient Representations for an- an Anomaly Detection. Uh, you say in this paper, learning representations that clearly distinguish between normal and abnormal data is key to the success of anomaly detection. Most of existing anomaly detection algorithms, you say, use activation representations from forward propagation while not exploiting gradients from back propagation to characterize data. Now, just to set the context, Kassan, uh, neural networks, uh, perhaps 60s technology, uh, deep neural networks, uh, cheaper silicon, and and uh, improving mathematical techniques uh, have brought it to a level that is becoming interesting and more interesting every day. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but uh, obviously, there are some there's some mathematical challenges. Um, you know, when we look at the brain, it is able to learn things with very little data. It is ex- it's really, really good in detecting anomalies, um, whereas deep neural networks requires typically a lot of data for training. They don't necessarily generalize that well. And then anomaly detection is, is a more complex problem, right? Absolutely. So, so th- this idea that you can use the gradients um, uh, in the back, back propagation, um, uh, you know, back propagation way, you can use gradients to detect anomaly. Uh, could you describe a little bit about uh, how how you do that? Yes, absolutely. And I think you kind of gave really very nice kind of uh, um, uh, foundation to 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 this work and. If I may add about, I'm gonna go step backward a little bit from anomaly detection and gradients yeah. and look at um, the neural networks in general, what happens as you describe, uh, there is a training phase where uh, you have a certain data and you have this deep network as a bunch of neural networks with different hidden layers. And um, in, in, in short, basically there are certain parameters, uh, we call them weights and biases within uh, this network. And the whole idea is that when you feed these um, images and all this data, uh, images as an ex- example in this case, and then uh, you keep propagating all the way with some kind of initial weights, 
And then at the end, basically, you have this kind of uh, whatever your application is, classification or segmentation or recognition uh, and so on. You kind of have a, you have the ground truth for your training data. And now you, you kind of start to compare uh, how good your, uh, your feed this network basically produced the predictions compared to the real ground truth. And then now you have an error and then you start to back propagate. And in the back propagation mechanism, you, you do quite a bit of optimization to really come up with, uh, with the right, uh, a good uh, weight value. Basically that's what the whole training is to find these parameters, these weights, these activations. Yeah. And in doing so, you are really doing optimization, meaning they are really relying on a gradient and you are really kind of uh, trying to compute these gradients uh, that will generate for you kind of the, the optimal or the trained uh, values uh, for your uh, weights uh, or parameters in the network. And um, one of the most challenging uh, application is, as you mentioned, is we train the networks on a specific type of data and then this generalization concept, how we can generalize this knowledge to cover other, uh, other data that's not really part of the training. Yeah. And uh, the challenge and usually in this network is uh, it, it, it doesn't really know when it doesn't know, right? It's a, it's, it's the, the, the challenge is that it, it always have this kind of uh, built-in enforcement to make a decision, right? Uh, but not all decisions are correct because um, it, it may not even fit the, the model itself. So um, that's basically where uh, actually a big part of our uh, study uh, started four or five years ago is to look into ways how we can empower the network uh, for a couple of things. The first thing is we would like to equip the network, the neural network to know when it doesn't know, which is I think is very, very right. important. Um, and the second one is we would like it to kind of differentiate between its knowledge space or subspace and uh, compare that with what is what data is really outside that learned space. And that's where anomaly detection comes into play. And um, as you mentioned, uh, the applications are really tremendous, but uh, the challenge is um, if, I, if I train uh, as an example, and this is very, very uh, famous kind of uh, simple data set, we call it the MNIST, where basically you have handwritten uh, digits, uh, there are 10 of them between zero to nine. And then uh, if you train uh, on, on, on really uh, zero to, to eight, for example, right? Uh, and then now you, you enter, um, so you have a training model, you, you finish the training, you have your model ready, and now you, you input and you're testing the digit nine, an image of the handwritten digit nine, yeah. And now uh, it hasn't seen it, right? It hasn't seen nine in the training. And now um, the question is, how will uh, this network uh, detect uh, and recognize what digit it is? And um, what uh, the previous works have been, um, uh, and so the challenge in here is to, for the network to say, I haven't seen this. This is an anomaly mm. compared to the pre other digits. Uh, so previous, there is, this is a very known problem. And uh, what people have been focusing on for quite some time on, on really um, using these great, these uh, activations, these weights yeah. as basically the main uh, uh, feature characterizing a model or a deep network. Right. So what uh, we started to look at um, years back to say, uh, what about the gradients? How, how um, the, the, the optimization algorithm uh, go from one step to the next where we're doing this gradients calculation, the, the, the gradients themselves uh, are, um, are really the source. Actually, if you look at the activation and the weights, they are nothing but the output from the gradients. Um, so we said, uh, ask ourselves, these gradients have really quite a bit of information uh, about two things. One is the model itself, the neural network architecture itself, yeah. as well as the data, right? Um, okay. So that's... That's when we start exploring um, how that um, uh, gradient information yeah. uh, 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 captures uh, the data uh, and decides if it's anomaly or not. So, so for my own understanding, Hassan, so um, a, let's say it's a supervised classification problem. We have a bunch of pictures of dogs and a bunch of pictures of cats, and we train a deep neural network 
it, it uh, learns how to how to differentiate between dogs and cats. And if you if you show it a ship, it will potentially put that into a dog or a cat category, right? Because that's all it yes. knows. Exactly. Um, but the the brain is so good at this that the brain will immediately know it, it is. You know, I just don't know it. <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, and so it's a complex mathematical problem, the anomaly detection. And um, and so if I understand this correctly, uh, Ghassan, so in a, in a typical training um, process, uh, we have the weights, we have the forward um, propagation of the, of the weights, and then the back propagation of the gradients is almost like a necessary evil, right? We don't necessarily use that uh, in, uh, in, in the process, right? It's just sort of uh, trying to figure out how to redistribute the errors. Is that what happens? Yeah, so exactly. So um, the gradients come into play in the training. And then after you finish the training, yeah. all what you have is basically the weights and the activations. Yeah. However, um, in, in, during that training piece, even after actually in the inference, even when you really input this um, picture of a ship to your already trained model, right? Yeah. At the end, of that model will produce a decision, as you mentioned, like a cat or a dog, that's all what it knows. Mm -hmm. But now, uh, what we said, let us really back propagate that thing at the end, that there is a vector at the end that maps to dog and cats and so on. Let's really back propagate that and see basically how much, and that's actually where uh, in that paper we described um, in, in some figure, we can just uh, kind of a visualization and illustration yeah. to say uh, that's like figure, uh, the second figure where we have, you can imagine there is this kind of a hyperplane that's really where the dog and the cats exist, but the ship is such a data that's very far from this hyperplane. Yeah. When you back propagate, what we found out basically those calculation of the gradients tell you basically that this point of the mm. ship is really far from the hyperplane. Yeah. Not only that, basically it, it has more than that, like how far and in what direction. So it, 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 is it really in, the, in, 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 in line with the hyperplane or is it the perpendicular to it? Or, so there is, a, there is also a direction. So there's quite a bit of information in the gradient mm. um, when you back propagate in the inference, which we never do in, in typical networks. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, again, if I understand this correctly, Hassan, so in the back propagation process, because the the network uh, essentially has to come up with a binary answer, it will ultimately put that into uh, cats or dogs. Uh, but what you're saying is that during the back propagation of the gradient phase, there is information there that, if you study that, would tell you it is anomalous. Exactly, exactly. So what you back propagate, um, you say, uh, assume that uh, the network decided that this is a dog, right? Uh, and then you say, okay, let me back propagate that information. Yeah. And now what you, or what you find when you back propagate, that the gradients will be changed quite a bit mm. because this input image, it's not something that the network saw during training. So now it has to associate this label of a dog with this kind of an image, which is totally new. So now the gradients have to work much harder. So you have, you know, uh, the network has to work much harder to have, and the gradients will have larger values, maybe more direction, more, uh, more uh, entry, more information in them. So the network has to change quite a bit to add or accommodate for this uh, anomaly uh, data. Yeah. Is it mathematically possible, Ghassan? So suppose I train a network um, rather than just a binary classification, but I have a third bucket and that third bucket is noisy data. You know, I'm just making this up. You know, I have cars and uh, ships and uh, airplanes and so on. Um, and so is there a mathematical way to say if I can't figure it out, if it is not not you know not a dog or a cat, then I'd put that into a third bucket. Uh, is it possible to train it that way? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And um, so th there are these attempts, and uh, these are kind of established uh, to have this kind of uh, what we call the other null space. Yeah. So anything that um, the network um, cannot, with a certain uh, level of certainty 
decide this belongs to uh, class one or class two, then let me put this into the null space. And the null space, you can think of it as the adder. Basically, every time I cannot really see uh, into this, uh, uh, into, into the two classes. And uh, your example you mentioned uh, that with the noisy data, yeah. that's basically is really a very good example because that's where we test robustness of, of models yeah. uh, for such a noisy data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have a number of papers uh, in this area that came out recently. One of them is implicit saliency in deep neural networks. Um, you say that uh, we show that existing recognition and localization deep architectures that have not been exposed to eye tracking data or any saliency data sets are capable of predicting the human visual saliency. So, so what do you mean by saliency here? Yes, so saliency is a feature um, in the human vision system. And um, usually, um, so the, the idea in, in, in from computational neuroscience is um, when, we, when we humans look at a certain scene, it's very complicated, very complex scene. Yeah. There are certain parts in the scene um, that we really focus on in the first uh, micro or millisecond. Mm -hmm. and that's basically the most salient part of, of the scene we're looking at. And that's being really uh, heavily utilized like in, in, in covers of magazines and in movies and, and, and such, a, such a outlets, because uh, the human basically, uh, they, we are tuned to look at these salient parts of the image or the video. So saliency can be a temp, can be a spatial. So you can think of, if I have a whole image, just the blue background, and there is, um, there is a, 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 an orange leaf uh, there, then definitely we'll, the only thing we will look at is just that orange leaf because it's very different from the surrounding. So this we call the center surround model in, in, in a human vision system. Yeah. And similarly in the temporal, so in the motion, when there is a motion, uh, that when we are very, very uh, sensitive to certain uh, saliency in the temporal axis as well. So um, the idea is, is uh, in, in, in human vision system is very, very efficient uh, in not necessarily processing the entire scene, but really focusing on, on, on specific part of the scene with the kind of a, a zoom in focus uh, into that details in that part of the scene. And um, we use that quite a bit uh, without us knowing as, as, as a human and, and our brains. And now what we, the question we ask ourselves uh, is there such a thing in, in the neural network? Is, is the neural network trying to zoom in into certain parts of the saliency? Yeah. And, at what, and, and at which level in the network, at which uh, depth into the network? So this was kind of a study to say, is there such a thing or not? Uh, we know that from neural networks, you know, the first layer or two, they mimic like V1 and V2 in the human uh, vision vortex. We look at edges, um, we look at lines, but um, we know this, but as you go deeper into the neural network, then we are looking at more context. Yeah. So this paper was more about, um, let's really um, look at the neural network and look in this, in this kind of an application. Is there some saliency mechanism already built in? And it was, I mean, there was a, the neural network has this kind of an implicit saliency detection mm. uh, by nature of the training part that looks at really what the most, um, informative uh, part of the image uh, to, to the application and the neural network. Yeah, it, it, it's really fascinating. You know, what, one of the constraints for the brain is, uh, you know, the, the energy and the capacity uh, and, and the bandwidth, so to speak. And so the brain is extremely good in discarding data. Um, and, and really focus on the most important things. Exactly. Um, so, so I wondered, you know, one direction in computer science, it appears, Kasan, I don't know a lot about it. It appears that because the hardware costs are going down, because memory costs are going down, the tendency appears to be more data and more complex and deep uh, networks. Um, will that take us away from these types of ideas that, Perhaps there are more efficient ways to learn things. Yeah, this is a, uh, this is really very brilliant question and it's a very important question at, at the same time. And um, so m maybe I can talk about that from my background perspective. I am 
I'm coming from the background of like digital signal processing and image processing and electrical yeah. engineering and applied mathematician math. And the idea basically is that, and this is something I, I, I discuss actually with my own PhD students almost on a regular basis. And uh, if you look at um, our work in the last seven, eight years, especially when it comes to machine learning, is, is, is to, to answer questions that will relieve us from just relying on deeper networks and more data. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, there, we have to really have a, a good understanding of what these deep networks are doing. And uh, if, if, if only, and this is something actually I tell my future students, I, I, I really don't care much about the performance if it improves classification by 0.1% in accuracy or so. Okay. What I really care about more do I understand what this network has done to the data and what's, uh, how it reacts to this data? And, um, and I think that's really a most, um, at least to me, is a, the more interesting problem. It, it, it will take us into, uh, uh, it, it will really produce uh, some kind of paradigm shift because it will relieve us from having deeper network and just rely on more data. Because uh, if you take the example of autonomous vehicles, for example, or even medical images, yeah. Uh, it, it is, there is not enough time and, 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 uh, and imaging techniques out there to collect all the different combinations and scenarios that could happen, right? Uh, so at the end of the day, there will be situations where you don't have enough data to train on. Yeah. But if you have a good understanding of the insights, like really um, what's happening in the neural networks, I think that's really the more um, uh, important and more interesting question. Back to your, exactly what the point you raised in the question. Yeah. Uh, that's more interesting and bring us really closer to understanding um, uh, what's really happening around us and even our own brain. Yeah, you have another fascinating paper in this area, Kassan. So uh, contrastive explanations in neural networks. Uh, you say visual explanations are logical arguments based on visual features that justify the predictions made by neural networks. And, uh, and so this is in that direction, right? It, it, uh, predictions are one thing, uh, but understanding why uh, is uh, is quite another. And uh, well, I think what you are arguing is that the why is quite important. Uh, that just yes, and actually, um, this uh, we 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 um, we have worked extensively the past, I would say, one year, one year and a half on this concept. And actually, I'm I'm really pleased that we we reached really very interesting. Uh, uh, revelation about about the neural network and um, it goes back actually if you go back to uh, uh, really publications from the 50s and the 60s in the social sciences and uh, psychology and the question is usually um, so if you look at your network there are some quantitative papers they are asked uh, why why p why why uh, why uh, this kind of bird for example right what what we what we uh, learned from uh, those uh, 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 earlier papers is that there is something very important to ask the question with the following format: Why p not q? <clears throat> so you bring this contrastivity into into the question. Yeah. And what we found, um, if we take that kind of model from social science and uh, psychology into into uh, into a neural network domain. Um, it doesn't matter what neural network you have. You can have the deepest network. Uh, you can have the most powerful one or the simplest one. We did experiment, extensive experiment um, uh, uh, so in the past uh, several months. And every time when you bring that question of why P, not Q, mm. um, it empowered the network quite a bit. It becomes much more generalizable. It knows much more and more robust uh, to it. And I'm not talking by one or 2%. There is quite a bit of margin in, in the performance because of this simple question of why P not Q. Um, and of course, we have to be careful how to do the experiments for the P and the Q. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the question really what matters is why P not Q. So, so let me see if I understood it, um, Gassan. So are you saying this idea that why P rather than Q, uh, that that concept can be used to train the network? Yes, so um, what happens in here um, is, uh, is again, we are, we are looking at characterizing the network, right? So what is, um, in, in either we are looking at the activations or the gradients. We are still looking at the gradients in this scenario even. 
But in either way, even if you look at the activations, is the same improvement happens. So what happens is you say, I want to train my network basically to really, uh, uh, I give it, uh, I give it a, a, a picture of uh, a photo of a convertible vehicle, right? Um, and then ask the question, why uh, did the network classify this as a sports car, right? Yeah. And then uh, it will give you basically some kind of regions in the, in the, in the, in the, in the image where it decided on doing that, you know, oh. that classification. Right. Now, when you ask the question of why sport not a sedan, right? Yeah. Then what, what the network basically highlighted um, is that top part of the vehicle, that was the decision mm. it made to do that. Um, and we applied that to birds, to traffic signs, uh, uh, I mean, a number of different basically uh, applications. And every time um, there is kind of a unique uh, contrastive explanation and um, how we get that basically is, is really uh, is, is not necessarily in the training or what we want is after the training. So the network is ready, is done. Yeah. Is we have the parameters, but now we want to empower the network basically to have it more refined. So actually I, I look at this as really a plug-in. It can be plugged in the training, yeah. but also, also in the inference part after the training. And in both cases, the network becomes more uh, lean, I would say, uh, to really zoom in and, on, on making... Uh, better uh, choices and decisions uh, based on the differences in, 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 the, in the images. Right. And, and so uh, a network trained in the usual way, uh, you're saying it, it could be improved uh, uh, by this, this type of a process? Exactly. Uh, and basically the, the, the network could become, so in the training, for example, instead of just uh, coming up with these uh, features and weights, uh, using only, um, you know, like uh, the typical training, yeah. you can really add to it um, when you back propagate, you say, um, let me now uh, input, um, let's say a, a spoon bill uh, as I have in that paper, yeah. and then the back propagate to see what flamingo. So now uh, how much, back to the question about the gradient, how much the network has to change itself, right, to, mm -hmm. to really figure out the relationship between the two. So that's one, one part. Yeah. But even if you get a, a, a ready trained network, now you want basically to understand how the network makes decisions. Right. So you can think of this, uh, and this is something actually uh, another uh, kind of spillover effect of this. Um, I, I can imagine using this kind of technology to evaluate networks. Um, you can imagine uh, down the road we'll have the autonomous vehicles and uh, each one has different, you know, AI uh, mechanism for, you know, a scene understanding. But you want to test basically if this network really is reliable in a way and yeah. what it does. And I can imagine it is a trained network, it's really done. Uh, so can we use this kind of technology to, to, um, to really test the limits of this network? Does it really know the difference between a spoonbill and a flamingo uh, by looking at Y, P, not Q, for example? Um, or why spoon bill not uh, rather than flamingo, and um, we we find that kind of there are tons of other applications uh, that we can imagine that will come out of this this work uh, because it it it, um, it brings this contrastivity uh, to to the network, which I think uh, is very very important even for us as a human being when we look at things yeah. through our eyes. Uh, we contrast things, we we uh, we compare things uh, without us feeling uh, that. Yeah. So, so sort of a generalization score that you can attach to a to a trained model, right? Absolutely, absolutely, exactly. But, but I wondered, uh, so, so for example, um, intuitively, I feel like if the heuristics that we find um, in in that process, if those heuristics are simple and easily understood. Uh, maybe my intuition is wrong. My intuition is that it will be less generalizable. It, it, is that true or not? So the the, the so the, the idea in here is um, when 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 for example the network has been trained on um, on on really a spoon bill, for example, right? Yeah. Um, or uh, and then I it, it hasn't seen the flamingo before, right? Yeah. So now when I make it see the flamingo. I want the network um, to really um, tell me 
which part of the bird um, makes it look like a spoonbill, which part it doesn't look like a spoonbill, right? Yeah. I want to know that. So uh, the, the contrastive part, it will highlight the differences, which is kind of the neck area, like the S shape mm. in the neck uh, is, is kind of the most salient part, the difference between the two. But the pink kind of feather and uh, body, mm. they are really very common. So I want to know, and actually this is the extension that I mentioned the work that we have done, yeah. We kind of uh, split um, the scene into different aspects. There are aspects that really there is a causality to it, like there is a, a causal mechanism that, that because of this, I can decide on this. Like because of the feather, then it will be a, a, a spoonbill, for example. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there are certain parts in the image that will empower the network to say, because of this part, then it will not be spoonbill, it will be flamingo, right? Uh, and I want to empower the network to to, to really see these differences and, and question itself uh, and not just to take whatever the, the training uh, is, 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 is providing. Hmm. I want to touch on one other paper, um, Ghazan. So perceptual image quality assessment through spectral analysis of error representations. Uh, you say we analyze the statistics of error signals to assess the perceived quality of images. Um, and specifically, we focus on the magnitude spectrum of error images obtained from the difference of reference and distorted images. So, so what's the application here? Okay, um, so this is actually, um, it, it's, it's under, uh, we spent quite a bit of time um, working on a very fascinating um, uh, problem, which is how can we mathematically um, come up with a measure of the quality of images and videos? Yeah. And uh, it's a very fascinating field because it touches on you know, computer science, uh, signal processing, as well as computational neuroscience, as well as color. Um, so it, it, and, and, and it, it has quite a bit of really um, uh, quite a broad uh, uh, coverage. So, uh, so we spent quite a bit of time for many, many years actually looking at images, videos, 3D visual data as well to assign quality uh, to it. And, uh, Actually, this this kind of work it it, it happened actually as a, a, a by accident, and we, we were working on a project uh, about um, the distortions. Like when you train a network to detect a traffic sign, for example, but now you have um, deployed the, the 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 vehicle into the real world, and then you have snow, you have haze, you have rain. So we came up with this kind of data sets uh, that have a control so the scene is the same everything is the same but we add distortion sometimes like a dirty lens or glare for example yeah. and sometimes we add environmental condition like uh, so we did everything in cgi like uh, rain or snow and so on yeah. and then when we were analyzing uh, to really come up with understanding what how the network reacts uh, part of the work tried to figure out the difference between the distorted data and the, and the, and the perfect or, the, or distortion free data. Um, and then uh, one of, uh, at the time, uh, a postdoc in my group, he, he realized when he looked at the distortion part of, of these images, he, he found basically kind of a, a very kind of almost like a fingerprint um, of these distortions based on different factors, different levels and so on. And um, that actually said, oh, if that's the case, given our almost like, you know, 10 years at the time of working on quality assessment of yeah. images, can we apply this to our quality assessment uh, previous work? And we did. And uh, it gave us really kind of an amazing uh, feature space uh, to look at this fingerprint, which coming from distortion, the images, to really right away uh, uh, come with an objective uh, a measure of the quality of these images uh, without us knowing what the distortion is or what the noise is, or what we have is just a distorted image. Um, yeah, I was, I was thinking, uh, Ghassan, is it possible? That, so, so you have a spectral, you know, sort of properties of the error. Uh, if that is well understood, is it possible to subtract that and, uh, and really remove the error? Yeah, so the, 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 this whole field of image denoising yeah. is, is a very, very like a 40 you know, plus uh, years of, of work in that, in that domain. Yeah. And there are thousands and thousands of algorithms. And this, the idea is that if you can really characterize the distortion and estimate it very well, then basically you can really subtract it and, and remove from the image. Yes, I mean, that's kind of the denoising. 
But what we wanted to do in here is that in uh, in, in in coming up with an objective, like in, in a, uh, for example, in a in a real time scenario, like in a conference call or a streaming of uh, some game, uh, you you have this distortion happening uh, in, in in real life, or even in autonomous vehicle, there are some some distortions coming. You want to know first. You don't really have enough time to store the data and denoise it. What you want, you want to know right in the, you know, uh, in, in real time if this frame or this bunch of frames are distorted or not. Uh, so you, you you can really use them for your, you know, detection or use them for your display or not or or ask you know the denoise algorithm to denoise. Um, so this this is the whole point uh, behind objective quality assessment. Uh, to really kind of give a score for each, every frame in terms of between zero and one is good quality or bad quality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, um, we have more to, <laughs> more to talk about. <laughs> and so we'll take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about your other papers. Sounds good, thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back, uh, Ghassan. Uh, we, we have been talking about anomaly detection in deep neural networks um, image quality assessment and so on. You have you have other uh, papers in this area. One of them is uh, fabric surface characterization, assessment of deep learning based texture representations using a challenging data set. Uh, you said tactile sensing or fabric hand plays a critical role in an individual's decision to buy a certain fabric from the range of uh, available fabrics for a desired application. Uh, therefore, textile and clothing manufacturers have long been in search of an objective method for assessing fabric hand, which can then be used to engineer fabrics uh, with a desired uh, characteristic. So this is, a, this is a complex problem and it has features coming from, uh, I guess, different sensations, uh, so to speak. So. You want to describe a little bit uh, as to how uh, how you go about uh, solving a problem like this? Yes, um, this uh, was really a very fascinating project um, where we were approached by um, a textile manufacturer, and um, they rely in terms of you know quality control on these experts who really sample the uh, the, the the product line. Um, uh, outputs and then uh, make a decision about uh, about the quality and yeah. the, the the idea is that if you really have a, a more of a an automated uh, quality uh, measurement then you can really feed that back into the chemical processes that really contributed to this manufacturing of the textiles um, so uh, we wanted to have a you know kind of a, a setup where uh, the first thing we thought about is really kind of have this uh, a zoomed in uh, camera into into that textile into the fabric mm. to really uh, have um, this kind of microscopic view of the textile and uh, um, the challenge wasn't really into getting the data and coming up with features the challenge that really took the time is really uh, the time we spend um, sitting down with those experts um, who, uh, as in many other fields actually, uh, could not really um, write down the rules they follow in making that decision. It just came up with experience over many, many years of doing uh, this kind of task. And between their eyes, the, the touch of their hand on these fabrics, they come up with kind of a, a decision about the quality. And, yeah. uh, uh, it, it, it took quite a bit of time. It took months and months and many, many hours of, uh, of uh, really trying to come up with these rules uh, until we really came up with a set of them as in the, in the paper. But uh, it, it was a, an initial attempt to say, can we really rely on the visual features uh, in a way uh, to have a, a calculation of, uh, of the human touch sense um, and how we evaluate that. 
And uh, we, we succeeded to some extent, but I think we, we barely scratched the surface because um, even the individuals themselves, um, their, their, um, their, their uh, scores of the quality changes from one day to another uh, because of temperatures, because of uh, you know, body temperature, because of uh, you know, moods, uh, because uh, different time in the day. Um, so they themselves, basically, they have quite a bit of variations. And that's why when we trained our networks, um, the inputs, the ground truth, actually, they were far from being um, a ground truth <laughs> because uh, they, they vary uh, uh, quite a bit. So it took us some time to get these to a certain, you know, uh, reasonable, stable ground truth level uh, yeah. before we train the network. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Uh, it appears that the 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 touch and vision uh, sensations, how the brain processes those sensations, appear to be uh, very very closely linked. Yes. Um, probably because uh, Homo sapiens were you know kind of stumbling around in the dark. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there is this is very fascinating. There are some works there and. Uh, in this work, um, this project, we collaborated with uh, uh, our colleagues in material science engineering who spent like uh, 34 years of his time, uh, his career on textile engineering and understanding textile. Yeah. And um, it, it was uh, it's very fascinating because it's, uh, it's, it's not simple. It's not only a vision, right? Uh, when you see a vision of a dog or a cat, you say, this is a dog or a cat. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's much more complicated because there is a manufacturing process went through it, but at the end of the day, is the human senses will evaluate and, and give a score. Um, uh, to mimic that in the, into a machine, uh, it, it has been, uh, it, it was really a very fascinating project. Yeah, so, so the, the objective here was, uh, uh, let me ask you, so uh, an expert uh, by touching a, a, a piece of clothing uh, and visually taking in the characteristics uh, of that uh, material reaches a decision. Uh, what's the objective to replicate that quality decision of an expert? Yes, uh, so uh, the idea is that if the expert can sample, um, let us say um, like 10 or 15 samples a day, yeah. Uh, right. Uh, but there are, you know, 10,000 other samples already in that day right, that we haven't really sampled, that we haven't provided quality for. Right. Um, so uh, can we have a kind of a, a continuous kind of learning, um, like a learning mechanism that's alive, that keeps learning from that expert with time? Mm -hmm. and, and, and eventually it will mimic what the expert would, would score uh, such fabrics. Uh, and that's basically the the idea is to create such a, a living model yeah. and initiate it. And that was exactly what, uh, what, what uh, the, the aim was. Uh, very successful. So I, I, uh, I have to be careful in saying yes or no <laughs> there, because <laughs> as I mentioned, I think um, in my concluding report to the sponsor, uh, we were very, uh, uh, our recommendation is uh, we, we need to go through, we had access only to one expert, but they have five, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, this is a long-term kind of a process and you, you really need to access all the five experts because they are different age and they are different gender um, and uh, they have different background experiences. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you want as much as possible data from them to kind of to better understand um, understand uh, the relation between visual and 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 and, and touch, uh, and um, yes, the the model actually we created, uh, they took it, uh, and, and uh, you know, given the agreement, I don't know yet uh, what uh, what happened within the company, but I think uh, giving the data and the score they gave us, uh, it was successful for the project. But yeah. for me to use this uh, in textile factories, I think. Uh, there's quite a bit of other work to be done before before we rely on it. So. Yeah, I mean it, it's a it's a fascinating area because the expert I would imagine cannot really explain the why. Uh, they can probably only only sh only uh, say what you know what they like or what they don't like, and uh, and so um, you know the processes. Uh, 
fairly subjective in some ways. We have similar things in business contexts. People tend to make decisions. They can't really explain why, but some of them seem to be pretty good at making decisions. Um, and so this may have applications in that direction. Can we take an expert's sort of, let's call it subjective process and make it objective <laughs> in some sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And this, uh, what, what you just described, it took quite a bit of time because um, it, it took many, many hours, many, many meetings over many months to really uh, come down to kind of six kind of fabric features. Yeah. And uh, in, in, the, in the textile engineering, uh, they have quite a bit of literature about what, um, what these features are. However, uh, to map these features to the quality is the challenge. And uh, I, I saw that in, in other works that I did with geophysics, with medical doctors even. Uh, like when you go to, and you mentioned the business, basically a decision-making process. And the same thing in medicine, right? I mean, you have different diagnoses, different opinions from different doctors, uh, because, um, and even the same thing in scientists, like a geophysicist, for example, that I worked with very closely. And yeah. the challenge is that basically kind of, uh, you know, they come with a decision and then why it, it, uh, it, it takes, uh, it takes uh, a lot of effort to explain why they make that decision because it's not straightforward to write it down onto paper. Yeah, it's very straightforward, and it takes a long time uh, to uh, for an expert to 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 get that expertise. Absolutely. Um, and so this is one of those situations where the, the brain is, you know, a, a brain is taking in lot of data, lot of cases, uh, and, and lot of you know experience based. Uh, training uh, for the brain and ultimately reach that uh, expert level, um, which is you know quite different from what the brain typically does. So yeah. it's interesting that you know there, there, I think there's a lot of interesting applications for something like this. I agree absolutely. Uh, it's uh, we barely scratch the surface of understanding the brain, but um, but this kind of experience, uh, how can you? Um, yeah, that's why I mean, is, is is it more data and time for their network? I think it's uh, is more complicated than that. And experience is uh, is is um, is a, a very very interesting uh, extension to to all these machine learning uh, networks. Yeah, you know, sometimes we you know we talk about humans having intuition, which is a sort of an experience based uh, thing. Um, but I, I think how humans make decisions is also heavily dependent on the initial conditions they were given, um, where they grew up, what their culture was and so on, what their education levels are. And so there are things that sort of get intermixed into a decision process that is at least on the surface appears subjective. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly the background, right? I mean, there is a, uh, the, the, the human is, is every human is a is really a, a, a complex system, and uh, from the days of basically when when that human was a baby, uh, you have all these senses, and they're just basically collecting not data but experiences, and and adding these, and this can be culture, it can be a background, it can be family, um, society, and then technical, it can be learning, and so on. So all of these they come together. And that's why um, it's, a, it's, a, it's very fascinating to kind of understand this, the human nature uh, and see what we can learn from it for uh, machine learning side of things. But at the same time, I always uh, warn my students uh, that um, just, I think there's a very common example uh, in the machine learning to see when we design airplanes, uh, we didn't really have exactly the mechanisms of a bird, right? like, uh, uh, but we were got inspired by it, right? And that's the whole point of, of understanding the human, to be inspired to design machine learning uh, networks to do that. But the human is a, is a very amazing kind of you know, machine uh, in that sense. And it's very complicated to, to understand as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have another paper in a, in a different area. So, so successful leveraging of image processing and machine learning in seismic structural interpretation. Uh, 
you say as a, as a process that identifies geological structures of interest, such as faults, salt domes, or elements of petroleum systems in general, seismic structural interpretation depends heavily on the domain knowledge and experience of interpreters, as well as visual clues of geologic structures, such as texture and geometry. Uh, with a dramatic increase in the size of seismic data acquired for hydrocarbon exploration, structural interpretation has become more time-consuming and labor-intensive. I used to be a structural engineer, Kassan. I, I mm. lost most of it now. <laughs> <laughs> but I sort of understand what you're talking about here. So this is one of those situations, again, where we rely heavily on experts um, uh, to, to make a decision based on large amounts of data, right? Absolutely, yes. And yeah. those experts are, are not cheap. I mean, those are very yeah. well trained over many, many years with a PhD in geophysics or petroleum and, and so on. Right, right. And so, so, so using, you know, sort of similar approaches here, again, deep learning models uh, uh, to say, can, can, can we actually create models that could um, replicate or get closer to human level decision making? So that's a good question. And I, I want to really bring something very special and different about this problem. And uh, this yes. problem actually is of the subsurface uh, imaging. Uh, yes. is, 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 although the data available to us is mainly coming from, uh, from uh, an exploration uh, projects. But you can think about basically even uh, CO2 capturing uh, and geothermal and planet this uh, planet uh, you know, discovery to see what is really the subsurface of Mars, uh, for example, it, it has quite a bit of really uh, implications. But the challenge in, in, in such a geophysics problem, to me, it's very, very similar in terms of constraints to the medical, uh, medical and healthcare and medical imaging problem. Why? Because I, I experienced this my life, my, myself in, in both of these cases. If you bring two geophysists um, into the same room and each one of them have 30 or 40 years of experience yeah. and you give them this kind of a seismic volume, they, what they will tell you basically where is the salt dome or the fault or this, almost, almost will never agree among themselves. It's <laughs> almost there is this kind of a discrepancy between because back to what you really we discussed earlier about the experiences that really um, input into into this decision-making process. So the challenge in here, uh, in the typical machine learning of natural images, you can rely on a crowdsourcing to come with labels and annotation. You can have a, a crowdsource, basically, and everybody in the world will know this is an airplane, this is a dog, this is a cat. So it's very easy to do that. Yeah. But now to rely on, you know, either for an X-ray or an MRI or an OCT scan or a, a, a seismic data, like, you need somebody who's very, um, who's really expert, not only have a degree, but also really kind of have somebody who has worked with the data, which is extremely difficult. But even if you get that, to get 50 of such individuals is even more yeah. uh, impossible. So the challenge now to the machine learning, which is a very important kind of part of machine learning uh, field, is that how do you train a network, uh, but not using supervised uh, machine learning that uh, you mentioned at the at the beginning of our uh, podcast here. The idea now, how can you train without having access to, you have access to data, but not annotation, not labels. How do you do that? Uh, and, and this is actually, the, we, we worked heavily, and there are some other groups who worked on this uh, for either medical or for geophysics, um, uh, or from a theoretical point of view in the neural network. It's very fascinating. How do you do this kind of a weekly supervised or, or self-supervised kind of machine learning? Yeah. Um, and this is a very good application of it because it's almost impossible to get ground truth uh, annotation unless you start to really drill into the Earth subsurface, which is very expensive. Yeah. So, so, so I wondered if there is a possibility, Kassan, to actually remove people from it. So expos, you know, you would know, let's say we are, you know, thinking about hydrocarbon exploration, uh, and, and you have the structural features where you're, you know, you are doing a test well or something like that, and you know the outcomes. And so, rather than relying on the expert, I wondered if you can just use the raw data and the outcome <laughs> to determine if if the machines can actually build up 
expertise. Yes, this is fascinating. And that is actually actually something we did actually in, in, yeah. in, in relying on the data itself uh, to come up with an initial annotations. Uh, and, and we leveraged you know, our, um, what we know uh, from image processing and from uh, modeling images, statistical models of images. So the, 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 the machine learning itself, it came up with annotations. But um, the beautiful thing about that is because the machine is coming up with these annotations, yeah. then we have a score. We have kind of a probability or a, an objective score um, how much we are really um, relying on this. Uh, for example, annotation for the space data, uh, how much trust do we have in it? Excuse me. And um, the good thing is you can use that certainty into the annotations yeah. to really empower your training of the, of the network. And we showed that actually in a couple of papers where um, we, we show that the use of how the, the probability of the learning itself, as well as the probability of the annotations and the labels themselves together make actually a better model. Um, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting, basically, application. However, I want to be, um, this is something every time I go to a geophysics event, um, I, 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 I mentioned this at the very beginning. And the way I look at this is, um, there is geophysics, but also at the end of the day, there is geology, right? And um, and it's really fascinating because uh, geologists actually is uh, even is much harder to get from them, um, you know, to write down why they make these observation and decisions. Yeah. But um, I, I look at this kind of just the same as in the medical field. I look at these machine learning uh, kernels as as uh, as tools that can work side by side with the human being, um, but uh, not. For the machine to only be rely, relying on the human being at every single step, but every now and then in active learning setup, they can really um, change the learning process here and there. But I, I look at them as an assistant tool to these experts, not to replace these experts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I want to finish up with another another paper uh, from the medical area. So relative efferent pupillary defect screening through transfer learning. Uh, so these are abnormalities of the eye? Yes. Uh, so this is actually something we started working on um, in 2016. And, um, and, and what we noticed um, at the time from talking with ophthalmologists, uh, it was really fascinating to see the numbers and to look at uh, given the aging population. Just if you look at the U.S. alone, yeah. Look at the aging population and then look at how many ophthalmologists out there, um, even with the best prediction uh, from the medical schools in the next 10, 20 years, mm -hmm. there is not really enough. Every ophthalmologist have to see uh, is 2,000 to one kind of ratio. And things become even much worse. We spoke with a few ophthalmologists in India, for example, and um, the queue basically we have in these clinics, you are talking about, it will take them... Uh, few years basically to see everybody in that queue. And the problem is um, the, to schedule a visit to the doctor, uh, to the ophthalmologist and eye doctor, um, it takes quite a bit of time. You go there and then if you, like it's a four hour, that's what we talk to some local uh, hospital. It's a, it's a three and a half to four hour and 15 minutes window. And uh, the real time of the, of the eye exam is, 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 is in 10 to 15 minutes. Um, and what we ask ourselves, two things. One, can we bring the eye exam closer to where the patient is, either is at home or maybe in a mall or maybe in the workplace or in a primary physician or the schools for children or pediatrician, for example. Yeah. So, um, so the first thing we have this component of a hardware, like a, some kind of an eye exam hardware. At the same time, we'd like to have in the cloud this kind of an AI tool that kind of does um, an initial screening. We are not saying this will do diagnosis. It yeah. will just have a recommendation basically to say, yes, uh, you really need to see the doctor immediately or um, you know, uh, you're, you're, it's not really high risk, but you need to see in the next few months or there is no need to see the doctor, right? Yeah. Um, so we created this kind of a head mount um, 
uh, display. It looks like a head mount display, but in reality, uh, we have sensors and cameras that they look at the eye. And um, they, they try kind of to come up with um, uh, capturing with, with kind of a, an audio mechanism and some lights to guide the patient. And so they put that device on and then uh, there will be audio to in, with instructions, what to do, where to look and, and so on. And um, this was an experiment, the paper that you're referring to, just to look at basically kind of a, if you, if you uh, look one of the uh, most kind of you know, popular um, test uh, is when you have this light into, uh, light into the pupil to see how the reaction of the other pupil and the other eye. Yeah. And um, this paper just was about that, but our device is really doing more than that. And, uh, and it, it's really fascinating how, how we can do this whole thing into uh, 17 seconds uh, capturing a video. And then it sends basically kind of, a, you know, this to an AI model. And then within a few seconds, you have this kind of, a, um, you know, a, a recommendation. And uh, we, 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 we took that to the next level and we said, okay, now we have a device closer to the patient. But let's see, you know, uh, do tracking of these patients, how they recover after injections, after, uh, because, you know, uh, after a certain surgery, the, the patients go home, and then maybe they are very disciplined about uh, their medication the first week or so. But this compliance with the medication is a very big problem after surgery for the eye. And then six months later, they have to come back and, and do something major. And um, what if they have that device? And we have also tracking, uh, not only tracking for such a, you know, like an outside of the eye, but also for their OCT scans, their fundus images. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have been talking to quite a bit of uh, ophthalmologists around, I mean, across the nation here, uh, from the West Coast to Chicago, um, to Texas. And um, they are all on board because uh, they said, if you can save me, um, save me uh, two minutes per patient, this, that means I will increase the number of patients and see dramatically every day uh, mm -hmm. uh, because I have a kind of a classification to see who's really the, the one that I, sh I should see first. Um, and, and, and this way they will not, uh, uh, you know, have an appointment to somebody who's not supposed to be there. Uh, um, and, and that's actually, this is something we are still working on. There's quite a bit of, um, of development and we see there is a path forward uh, to use this machine learning and here to to really come up with um, customized, um, you know, like a treatment uh, for, for, for the patients, uh, because you can really have this AI model that really kind of, you know, it, it keeps tracking and um, customized to this patient over, over years. Um, uh, there's quite a bit of, of really um, uh, objectives here uh, to really prevent blindness at the global scale, just because of AI. And, uh, I'm a true believer that this is something um, I, I see that we as humans are really capable of coming up with this, um, and and uh, and I think the future is very bright in this in this domain. Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, there, there are multiple benefits here, right? As you say, the um, re really the quantity of patients uh, is going to continue to increase because everybody is getting older. There are many diseases that are progressing with age. And so, not only to be, uh, not only to make the doctor more efficient in diagnosis, but also, you know, I, I could imagine something like this could be a home kit that you can do more measurements on more continuous basis. And sure. you know, it, it's not like you know um, you are going to make a diagnosis, but at the very least, it puts you into that red, yellow, green bucket, you know, type uh, type situation. And if things are progressing in the wrong direction, then you you go see the doctor, you know, something along those lines. Absolutely, exactly. And you can really add to it another, you know, uh, biometric kind of measurements and um, and then kind of add this kind of that profile. And it's yeah. really something just you can have it in the living room, right? It's, a, it's just a small device. It's a, it looks like a consumer electronic kind of device, but it really, uh, it prevents blindness eventually. And, and that's really our, uh, our objective out of this. Um, this work. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in conclusion, uh, Ghassan, you know, you have done a lot of work uh, in this area. Um, you know, some people say there's a lot of hype in, uh, in artificial intelligence. 
uh, we see applications uh, in many many different directions too. So so, what's your sense? If you look forward five years, uh, where do you think we will be? Um, are we uh, are we making progress uh, in in real applications uh, in these areas? I mean, we discussed some of them already. Uh, where do you think we will be in five years? So I, I think this is really kind of, you know, always the question on the table when it comes to AI. And uh, yes, I mean, there has been uh, a hype. I think uh, I think it's mostly behind us now because there was a time or period where people thought that uh, having an AI just increased data and then you have, um, you know, a big hammer that can solve everything. You have a tool that can does anything. <laughs> but I think people really, I mean, it's, it's which is really um, important. And this is something... I really teach in my classes um, to set expectation because it's really important to know the, the, um, the limits of AI and machine learning and when they really work and they are not. And that's why the analysis, the understanding of them is extremely crucial in that. And I believe there, there are kind of, a, you know, there are these five years from now, there are certain applications that are really taking shape where yeah. we know that the AI is, is will be extremely important um, to the society and the human uh, uh, overall. And, and, and uh, we believe in those like other really medical applications, other transportation applications, even education. For example, with given this pandemic now, uh, we have kind of a tool where um, we, we, uh, we rely on AI to do some kind of you know, uh, character recognition to grade exams very quickly, definitely. <laughs> We as the, as, as the professors and the instructors, we are part of the process to approve these uh, decisions by the AI because these are grades. But yeah. uh, it, they really kind of reduce the amount of time quite a bit. Uh, so the, the, I always say AI and machine learning, uh, we have to look at them as uh, they assist the human. They are side by side. They will never replace the human being, but they will be uh, uh, assistant to the human being. Uh, and I believe uh, that as five years from now, we'll have a better um, working uh, systems that, that, that do just that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Kassan. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you very much for the invitation. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.